main passage today is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. We're going to read that here in just a second. Um, like I mentioned in previous sermons in this series, that most sermon series, I try to, to have a really small number of scripture references. It's always kind of a goal of mine, except I completely threw that out in this sermon series, and I'm referencing all kinds of other scripture passages. So there's a place in your church bulletin to take notes somewhere in the seat back in the row in front of you. There's a pen or pens available, and so there's a, a way for you to write down the other scripture references and be able to, to look at those and study those and let the Spirit speak to you through those passages um, today and in the days ahead. So I want to encourage you to, to be prepared to do that this morning. Let's begin by reading together 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Paul speaking to Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that it is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. The word of the Lord, God to us, from the Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Mickey Cohen was an underworld figure who controlled most of the West Coast mob for over 30 years. He was born into an Orthodox Jewish family in the Bronx in New York City. And his father died when Cohen was an infant and his mom moved west. At the age of six, Cohen sold newspapers on the streets of Los Angeles. As a teenager, he began fighting in illegal prize fights and committing petty crime, which landed him in jail until he was released at the age of 15. Upon his release, Cohen moved to Cleveland, Ohio, where he began to train to become a professional boxer. He fought his first professional match at the age of 17. Two years later, Cohen challenged the world featherweight champion, and he suffered a TKO in the first round. Cohen then became entangled with members of the underworld, first in Cleveland and then in New York and Chicago. He met Al Capone and became his enforcer. He ran illegal card games for the mob, wore out his welcome, fled to Los Angeles, eventually joining forces with the gangster Bugsy Siegel. Mickey Cohen dabbled in gambling in Las Vegas, became a bookie at the horse tracks. He skimmed money from Bugsy Siegel's accounts that he managed and ran with a long list of gangsters. And eventually, years and years later, he was convicted of tax evasion. In the late 1950s, one of his associates attended a Billy Graham crusade, and that associate was converted to faith in Jesus Christ. Before that associate left the mob, he attempted to share his faith with his boss, Mickey Cohen. He arranged for a personal visit with Billy Graham and was interviewed by Mike Wallace on TV. But Cohen struggled to understand why he, a Jew, needed a savior. 
He said, I'm very high on the Christian way of life. I told this to Mike Wallace. Billy Graham challenged me, challenged him to accept Jesus Christ, and Cohen replied, why not? There are Christian football players, Christian cowboys, Christian politicians. Why not a Christian gangster? And so it seems obvious that Billy Graham did not succeed in leading Mickey Cohen to a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Like Mickey Cohen's world of the 1960s, our world today is filled with people who have a shallow concept of Christianity. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace. So what is cheap grace? Cheap grace is preaching on forgiveness, but not requiring repentance. It's preaching on baptism without church discipline. It's preaching communion without confession and church membership without tithing. We're in a sermon series today entitled Living in the Last Days. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 says, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Now we know from Scripture, Jesus himself said, No one knows the day or the hour when, when Jesus is coming back and everything is going to eternally change. Uh, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son. Only the Father knows. So it's a fool's errand. It's a waste of time to invest yourself into, into like having some knowledge about when the end is coming, when Jesus is coming back. Yeah, he's coming back. Yeah, we've been given a lot of signs of what it looks like when it's getting close. But that's not the point. But you know what is the point? These are the last days that we have in this life. I'm 59. I'm never going to be 49 or 39 or 29 or 19 or 9 again. Those days are gone forever. And so whether whether I have an hour or whether I have 40 years left on this earth, these are the last days. And, and the same goes for you. Whatever time you have left, these are your last days. So let us live like it's urgent that we be up to date with Jesus. That by faith in Jesus Christ, we are obedient and faithful to Him. That we do what He asks us to do. That we abstain from what He asks us not to do. That we are active in sharing our faith. These are our last days. And in the last three messages in this series, Paul has reminded us that in the last days, we need faithful teachers. We need enthusiastic responsibility. And we need an unashamed testimony about salvation that's only available by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we don't want a weak grace. We want to be strong in grace. And Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's our call. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul uses four analogies. And all of us ought to be able to identify with one of these word pictures that were given here in this chapter. These analogies reminded Timothy of the commitment that God expects and the commitment that God honors. It's not cheap grace. It's deep grace. The first analogy is be a faithful steward. When we hear the word steward or stewardship, sometimes we automatically think of tithing or of finances, financial stewardship. But tithing is just one aspect of stewardship. Stewardship is much more comprehensive than that. Exercising regularly is an act of stewardship. Setting aside time to pray, 
that's an act of stewardship. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, how we handle the Bible is also stewardship. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Now, these things that Timothy heard Paul say have been recorded in a book. It's called the Bible. 13 of the 66 books that make up the Bible are Paul's letters, either to people or a person or to churches. When you become a Christian, you're expected to become familiar with your Bible. And, and that is not always an easy thing. For one, it's long. My Bible, which has small print, has 1,048 pages. It was written by 40 authors, and each writer had his own style. It was also written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, none of which we typically speak um, in our homes on a day-to-day -day basis today. And it's not chronologically arranged. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. The oldest written book that's in the Bible is the book of Job. Some of the Bible is easy to read because it's narrative. It's written like a story to be told, a story to be read. So some of it's easy, but it's also poetical and allegorical and prophetical and apocalyptic. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Sometimes more than one genre is mixed. Parts of the Bible are so deep that we will not fully comprehend them until Jesus returns. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The perfect one, Jesus Christ, is coming again. And there, there is a depth and, and a meaning to the Bible that, that we hint at, and we understand to a degree, but when he comes back, we're going to know in a, in a fuller way that we do not know today. The study and application of the Bible is a lifelong assignment. Yesterday at our men's breakfast, we, we talked about being in the Word on a regular basis and the commitment to that, the intentionality of that, and the, and the benefit and blessing of that. Genesis is an easy book to read because it's mostly narrative, and most people, when they decide they're going to read through the Bible, they'll start in Genesis because it's the first book in the Bible. Then after that comes Leviticus. And Leviticus is pretty much devoid of narrative, and it's filled with detailed laws that um, can be difficult to see how they apply to our day and age today at times. If you can't sleep, read Leviticus. I know that all Scripture is God-breathed. That's what Scripture testifies about itself. All Scripture is God-breathed, Spirit-filled. And I know there's a blessing connected to reading. But I also know that some parts are just easier to comprehend. But it's important. All of it is important. And all of it needs to be studied. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. If you teach God's message, you have to work 
beforehand. You have to study it. It requires effort. And once you study the Bible, you automatically inherit two responsibilities. First, you are to preserve it in its original purity. Man, I can't overemphasize how important that is. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So we're not alone in this. God blesses us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. But we need to maintain the meaning of the Word of God as God intended it to be understood. And we have His blessing and, and His partnership to be able to handle it correctly, to preserve it and the, and the sound teaching that it gives us. The Bible's like medicine. Have you ever noticed that every prescription has an expiration date? One pet peeve that doctors share is patients who don't finish their prescriptions. If the chemicals lose their potency, the medicine becomes ineffective. If the full course of medication is not taken, its intended effect on the body doesn't occur. Paul told Timothy not to trifle with the gospel, not to be casual with it, not to stop reading it, studying it, and understanding it. Paul tells Timothy, guard it, preserve it. Don't allow wishy-washy people with divided allegiances to dilute God's absolute truth. Avoid the temptation to water down God's truth. Paul reminded Timothy to stand firm. He said, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Keep it pure so that we don't lose its power. We also have a second responsibility. We are to pass it on to reliable people. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. There's intentionality in passing it on and the truth of God's word enduring beyond us. Christianity is always only one generation away from becoming extinct. There are more Christians in the world today than all the generations before today put together. So I'm not saying that Christianity is dying or rare or something like that, but it's always one generation away from becoming extinct. We must pass it on to the next generation. We must pass it on to the next generation. Jesus called Paul. Paul converted Timothy, and now in this second letter to Timothy from Paul, the baton is being passed into Timothy's hand, and Paul challenged him to pass it on too. We are responsible for not just learning the gospel, for learning the Bible, but passing it on to the next generation. The oldest college in the United States is Harvard University. The Massachusetts legislator legislature established Harvard 16 years after the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. That's like back in the day, 1600s. Do you know why Harvard was started? To train clergy. And here's, this, here's a, a, 
excerpt from the founding document that, that founded Harvard and established its purpose. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. And seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom, let everyone seriously set himself by prayer and secret to seek it of him. And it references Proverbs chapter 2, verse 3. Everyone shall so exercise himself in reading the scriptures twice a day that he shall be ready to give an account of his proficiency, unquote. So, Harvard's come a long way since then, have they not? Be a steward of the Bible. Read it, study it, and memorize it. Don't forget to pass it on. That means that we ought to today support Christian colleges who teach the truth, and we ought to share it ourselves. The second analogy is be a good soul, be a loyal soldier. Most of us have relatives, or we know someone serving in the military. If you do, then you know about the sacrifices they make, the long hours, the low pay, the frequent moves. Paul was familiar with soldiers too. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. A person does not enlist in the military if they're looking for an easy life. Paul was suffering. When he wrote this letter, and he understood that soldiers suffer too. The King James Version uses the word hardship for suffering. It's a hardship on one's body to go to boot camp. They make you get up at like, oh stupid 30 in the morning <laughs> to go run somewhere to stand in line to do something and then run back, right? The hardship on the body to go to boot camp. When I was in the military after boot camp, I had an opportunity to talk to a Navy SEAL about his training. And at one point in, in that SEAL's training, he's in Chicago. And he said he was tested like never before. He he's in it, his unit was taken to the shores of Lake Michigan in December. There they were told to strip down to their gym shorts and they had to stand up to their shoulders in Lake Michigan for an hour. Um, awesome. We should go do that now, right? <laughs> um, the military life is hard on the entire family. So Paul tells us to be loyal in spite of hardships. In fact, he invites us to join him, to enlist with him in hardship by embracing the challenge of Christian ministry. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul rehearses the hardships he encountered during his ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. Are they servants of Christ? Then he says, I'm out of my mind to talk about this. I am more. I have worked 
much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Over and over in Paul's second letter to Timothy, we are disabused, we are stripped away from, we are invited to lay down this American consumer idea that if we're doing all the right things, we get all the blessings now. Paul suffered in ministry. He suffered regularly. He suffered extraordinarily in ministry. And he wrote 13 books of the Bible. That's how much the Holy Spirit invested in Paul. Um, and, and we remember him today. And we're here today as followers of Jesus Christ in large part because what God began in Paul 2,000 years ago, he continued through the ages, and we're here today. And Paul suffered immensely. So may we just disconnect ourselves from the American consumer society that surrounds us and just choose to serve Jesus. The blessing of doing the right thing is having done the right thing and being right before God. That's the blessing. And so let us not expect something else. Let us be grateful for everything that God gives us, including suffering for his name. By comparison to what Paul went through, we're a little spoiled. There's one aspect of soldiering that is non-negotiable, and that's loyalty to one's superiors. A soldier's primary allegiance has to be settled, because without it, he endangers his whole unit when under fire. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 62, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So let us be faithful. Having done the right thing is the reward for doing the right thing. The third analogy is be a disciplined athlete. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 5, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. National Football League, you may remember Deflate Game, when the New England Patriots were accused of letting a little air out of the ball in a playoff game because it makes it a little easier to catch. Uh, Performance-enhancing drug scandals have impacted all kinds of, of professional and Olympic sports. Sadly, some people have no regard for rules or laws of any kind. But the Bible teaches us that we are to be holy just as God is holy. The Bible tells us that we abstain from sexual immorality. The Bible tells us that we use wholesome speech only. 
The Bible tells us that we forgive those who offend us. The Bible tells us to be generous to those in need. The Bible tells us to be patient with those who irritate us. The Bible is filled with all kinds of guidelines for living. Here's one from 1 John chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So, so we're approaching a season, uh, February 14th on Valentine's Day, where love is all ooey-gooey and squishy-wishy and lovey-dovey. <laughs> And uh, some fat little angel or something shooting an arrow, right? Um, this says, this passage, 1 John chapter 5, says that love for God is to keep his commandments. Man, that's like intentional. That's, um may produce some ooey-gooey, lovey-dovey feelings, but that's not, it's not motivated by them. It's motivated by faith. It's motivated by a desire to be faithful to the one who saved you. And so love of God is an entirely different animal than, than the love that our culture um, encourages us in this time of year. God's guidelines are not burdensome. God's guidelines are not unreasonable. And our obedience is a testament of our love to Him. We ought to obey. Yes, we should. But not out of fear but out of love, because God has our best intentions at heart. Be like the good athlete who obeys the rules. Back in 1980, I still remember when this happened. Rosie Reese entered the Boston Marathon. She set a world record, running the course in 2 hours, 31 minutes, and 56 seconds. I, I don't know that I could drive through Boston that fast. Um, her time was 25 minutes faster than the time she posted just six months earlier at the marathon in New York. But it wasn't long before the running world became suspicious. When she got to the finish line, she wasn't exhausted. She wasn't sweating. And she couldn't recall one of the greatest traditions of the Boston Marathon running through the campus of Wellesley College. She wasn't lean like the other female runners either. It wasn't long before the world discovered that Rosie Reese tried to steal the Boston Marathon. She started the race and then dropped out. She hopped on a subway and rejoined the race with one mile to the finish line. And she got found out. Maybe right then, Maybe at the end of your life, maybe at the judgment seat. But there will come a time when there's no place to hide. So follow the Lord's rules, just as an athlete is supposed to. And now our, our fourth and final analogy, be a hardworking farmer. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. A hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of his crops. Now, we might know something about farming, living where we do, uh, but there, there are challenges to farming. They are many. For instance, 
all of us in the sanctuary now that the children have gone to children's church, we all grew up before there was reality TV. Nobody lined up to applaud anybody for planting straight rows or harvesting bumper crops or collecting eggs or delivering baby calves. Hard work, day after day, done in secret. Nobody there to film it and applaud it. A second um, challenge is the hard, unending work. Kids up before school to do chores. And when they get home, another set of chores are waiting. Adults also working endless hours every day. Raising beef or dairy cattle requires long days of work every day. You get up in the morning, they're still there. They still need to eat. They still need water. They still need dog. They still need protected. As Christians, we're expected to work like a farmer. And most of the work is not glamorous. Hours of work happen before and after a potluck. We sing for 20 or so minutes in a worship service. The preparation for singing can take six times that length. Preparing the screens for our worship lyrics and sermon notes takes much longer than the length of a worship service. Teachers spend much more time preparing to teach biblical truth than the length of the class or small group that they lead. So, a lot of hard work. Some of it um, unlauded, unglamorous. Farming also has not only challenges, but it has advantages. The farmer is the first to receive a share of the crops. Now, you may not personally be a farmer, but there's a sense of satisfaction when you go to your garden and you eat the first tomato, the first cucumber that comes ripe that season, isn't there? When you teach a good lesson, when you cook a good funeral meal, when you prepare communion, when you set up chairs, when you learn a new song, or when you lead someone to faith in Jesus Christ, there's a real sense of satisfaction. So I want you to hear me. Salvation is free. It cannot be earned. But our response of faith to the salvation that's offered us in Jesus Christ requires, expects of us service. Let us serve God as a steward of the Bible. Persevere and pass it on. As a soldier for Christ, endure hardship with a good attitude. As an athlete, obey the rules. Win the prize. As a farmer, work hard even when it's not glamorous because in the end, you'll benefit the most. The last stanza of the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, reads like this. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, your gift to us to offer back to you. 
but we have this call to be good stewards. And so in response to your call upon our lives, you call us through your holy word as we saw today.